this all of a sudden? Why? Why are you nervous? We're doing nervous? something different. We're doing something new. This is your thing, man. Literally the same thing we do all the time, which I know. is just talk. <laughs> this has a different name. But but if it fails, it's my idea that failed, and well, I'm not cool with it. If it fails, it won't go on air. Nobody will know about it. I'm still gonna be upset if it fails. I think it's gonna be fine. All right. Good. 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 Okay. All right there, Eam Over Easy listeners, Drew here, joined by Andy and Tanner. We're back at DK Diner, the, our uh, home base for recording. We're going to do something a little different today. This is episode one. We're going to call it our pilot episode for The Clinical Grind. It's a new segment that we're hoping is going to take off and do pretty well for us as we are expanding our Eam Over Easy reach out there. And this started as an idea a couple months ago when we were having a planning meeting, uh, thinking about the first nine months of EM Over Easy, where we had been, our successes, our failures, and then where we were going to go. And one of the things all three of us are really excited about and passionate about are working our clinical shifts, and that's kind of where the idea for the clinical grind has come from. This is not a pound you with medical information session. This is everything that occurs in a clinical shift type of conversation. We're going to talk a little bit about medicine. We're going to talk about social dynamics. We're going to talk about all the things that it takes to succeed and do well while you're working a shift in the emergency department and navigating the hospital system. So to take off conversations we're already having, it's going to be the conversations we always have just with a, a little bit more of a clinical spin on it. To be honest, we've done this before. Think back to episode 12, we were talking about pseudo seizures, mm-hmm. but since then we haven't really covered much in the way of a clinical now we've kinda, topic. Yeah, kind of left it to the side to do more social things, and which we're more comfortable with, but I think it's, this. I'm excited for this. This is going to be fun. So now it's time to get back to a little bit of clinical medicine. Because at the end of the day, here's what we're all trying to do. We're just trying to all be good clinical providers and navigate the system, and we're hoping this conversation is going to help us all and all of our listeners just be a little bit better the next time they so, show up to a shift. That's a lot of S's. It was a little hard for me to get out, but... I was going to say, you passed the stroke scale. No wow. Stars. No All stars. right. <laughs> Let's rock and roll. All right. So today's case is a clinical situation I came across a couple months ago. I was working at a community hospital um, about 45 minutes outside of the, the major city that um, we would transfer all our patients to, and we get a call from EMS that we have a kid who is post-dictal coming in. Had a seizure at school seemed like he was doing okay. EMS couldn't get an IV going. Didn't get too excited over it. Sounded like this was just a normal post kind of thing. Sounds very unexciting. Right, very unexciting. Yeah. Until the kid actually shows up. And initially the question is, is he post-ictal or is he still actually seizing? Because he's not real responsive to us. And we pretty quickly decided this is not just post-ictal, that this kid's still seizing. Which, of course, now all of a sudden we have a pre-pubescent, you know, he was 11, 12-year-old boy um, with pretty clear seizure activity, not uh, tonic-clonic seizure, but seizing still, mm-hmm. and no IV access, no meds drawn. There was only one nurse checking him in who uh, I met at the door also, and now the tension in the ER went from maybe a one or a two to, let's let's be honest, it, we're up to a nine or a ten. Yeah, that's scary. And now we got to deal with the, the situation. Right about that time, mom shows up too, and mom says, this isn't right either, so now mom is stressed. And so the real thing in front of us is managing our emotions, right? This is a pediatric kid in a non-pediatric hospital. We are emergency medicine physicians who deal with this stuff all the time, but anytime a sick kid comes in, it, it causes a lot of increased tension for us. And now we have to deal with our own anxiety, mom's anxiety, and, and address the situation. Fortunately, things went relatively smoothly, uh, immediately got some uh, intranasal medication, got that sprayed in, got things seeming like they were calming down some, got an IV in, followed up with some Ativan, 
and got the kid off to the CT scanner because the story had gone that he'd had seizures about two years ago, maybe some questionable brain growth type thing, but had been off of his medication and nothing had been going on for the past year and a half, two years. He'd been a healthy kid. Things just didn't look right. Everything else vital-wise was okay. And now he comes back from the CT scanner, which is, you know, the inner tube of death. Unfortunately, we, uh, we survived that, that operation. And we're faced with this question again, is, is he still seizing or not? Because he seems like he's more postictal, seems like he's responding to us. We feel like we're moving in the right direction. We had already called the pediatric transfer center and said, hey, I got a kid, uh, required a couple rounds of seizure medication for seizures. He's not currently on anything. There's this history of, of some type of CNS issue. We think he needs to come back up to you guys to be evaluated. They had accepted him. We were going to set up transport. And then the kid seizes again. Now the heart starts to drop a little bit. Before we go any further in the case and, and kind of talk about what's next, I, I want to hear about what you guys do to manage these types of situations. And, and sure, we can talk about the seizure management, but let's talk about also just how we manage ourselves in those situations and how we manage the department, because I think that's just as important. I think for me, the EMS encode that sounds not exciting and then turns out to be, oh, this is actually serious, is a very interesting clinical situation because you kind of described it exactly. You have one person checking in the patient. It, you walk in, you see a patient that goes from, you weren't excited to, oh crap, this, this just got real. In that scenario, I really like to kind of go back to the basics. And we have one of our attendings that, that's his thing that he preaches all the time to anybody anywhere that will listen. ABCs. 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 What I would do in that scenario is I would try to get resources on hand as soon as I can. If you just have one nurse, call in a few other people, get some people set up so that you can get lines, you can get you know airway stuff if needed, et cetera, like that. And so that you have the resources should it continue to decompensate. For me, it's uh, it's the whole duck on a pond analogy, especially when you go from kind of zero to 60 with these. It reminds me when you come into a shift and there's not a lot going on and then all of a sudden you get slammed. It's kind of that same mentality where you have to ramp up quickly. What's a duck in the pond analogy? Well, the whole idea is that when you look at a duck on a pond, it looks like it's gliding across the water, where in reality it is paddling ever, ever, you know, ever fast to try to maintain its balance. Yeah. And so for me, it's, that's really what this is, is that you have to be a duck on a pond as a clinician where you have to remain calm. Cause there's, I like that. Because your staff is a direct reflection of who you are. But in, the, in, your main, in your mind, you have to be quickly going through these lists of ABC, ABC, who else do I need to kind of marshal around me to get the resources. Um, and then it's, it's complicated when the mom comes in because, you know, you kind of get started and then you add another social factor in, which is a mom who's worried, rightfully so, but adds, adds another layer of emotion to where, you know, your nurses might take a key off of her rather than off of you. And so you kind of have to marshal it back to, okay, we're not taking the cue off of mom. We're taking the cue off of calm, collected, doing what's right for the patient. So it definitely is a... Um, it's hard, you know. It's we've all been in codes where we've come out, and people probably made the comment where I'm so surprised that you were calm in there, and I'm like, oh, I was, because all I could tell was the screaming going on in my head and the lights and sirens going off. But yeah, externally, my, my heart rate was calm. fast enough for me and the patient that didn't yeah. have one. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I appreciate that I was able to keep that in to keep the room calm. So it's yeah. truly one of those duck on a pond analogies. Yeah, a lot of people do key off of how we are acting and what we are doing, especially when you're in command of the whole room. You gotta, you gotta show that. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I. What I found difficult in this situation, I found difficult in other situations, is particularly seizure patients, sometimes your respiratory distress patient that doesn't look that bad, but you know is sicker than they actually are. Yeah. There's patients that don't look sick on the outside that are pretty sick on the inside, and sometimes there's this dichotomy of how urgent your staff thinks the patient is versus how urgent you think the patient is. So in this case, the kid wasn't having major seizure activity, but he had some 
subtle clinical signs that he was still seizing and that this wasn't just post-ictal and he wasn't turning the corner as well as he wanted to. So I actually found myself in this weird situation where I had to ramp up and yet calm down at the same time and literally looked at my providers and said, hey, this kid's still seizing. I think he's still seizing. We need to do this, 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 and this but do it in a manner that didn't escalate the situation so nobody actually got anything done. Fortunately, I was concerned that it took a couple rounds of seizure medicate of uh, abortives before we went to the CT scanner that I had already called pharmacy. We got a loading dose of Keppra coming down for the pediatric patient and planned on loading him plus dripping him um, just because the, the plan was for him to go to a get transferred to a pediatric facility, wanted to make sure he was on a, a proper dose of medication that I was kind of setting himself up, setting the kid up for transfer pretty well. And then we had this moment so thought he was seizing again, got another round of abortives, thought he was calming down. Kid actually was responding pretty well, starting to look at us, but he was rigid. And not rigid like he was contracted or he was posturing, but just he, he wasn't relaxing very yeah. well. And particularly his mouth wasn't relaxing. Something else is going on. Something and, else is going on. You yeah. know, it's one of these, this isn't a true CNS, you know, major yeah. um event that we're seeing as far as the way I, that's not what I mean by it's not like grandma or anything not, like not grandma and again he's not posturing but he's just not relaxing very well and I had another physician with me at this point because it was kind of just running sure. it by the, the, fortunately the rest of the department wasn't blowing up so I got to have you know the bedside consult with the other emergency medicine physician and at which point the kid made our decision really easy but also amped the anxiety again is he starts to gag but he's gagging and he won't open his mouth now we're like, holy junk. Yeah. I got a kid who maybe he's postictal, maybe he's still seizing, he's gagging, he's about to throw up, and I tried to jaw thrust him to open his airway and roll him on his side and I can't I can't open his mouth up. It's right? a very so, scary moment. So now this kid, if he does vomit and he sure looks like he's going to, this is automatic aspiration because there's nowhere else for that to go. So at that point, decision's pretty clear. We have to be more aggressive in treating potential seizure like activity and also take care of this kid's airway. Yeah. Also knowing that he's going to get transferred 45 minutes up the road in the back of an ambulance. And the last thing I want is for this to happen in the back of the ambulance where, having been a former paramedic, that is not a fun thing to deal with. Not optimal. Called the transfer center back and said, hey, this kid now is a priority kid. Can you give me your helicopter? They say, no, weather's not great, can't get flying. Fortunately enough, they had a transport truck on their way to a different facility for a less critical patient they were able to divert, so they're only about 20 minutes away. It's supposed to be 45 minutes away. That's serendipitous. Which is totally serendipitous. We get all the airway equipment together, explain to the parents what's going on, trying to keep everything calm, and then I have one more moment where truly I almost lost it, which was right after induction, use some paralytics, kid gets induced with intomidate, uh, did rock, and I... I thought I had counted the 30, right number, thirty seconds, and I, it's I did it. So hard to count. I that. did a double. You know, it was, yeah. a, it was a generous dose of rock, so it should have been a quick onset. And I give the kid a double dose. He's satting fine. I go to open his mouth, and it doesn't open. And nothing. Ugh. Sphincter tightening moments in life. <laughs> yeah. So, so wh- what do you guys do? Your nursing's gonna notice that you tried. Like it's something that you did that they're gonna be like, oh, this isn't this isn't right. And I try not to make a response. Yeah. I try not to be like, all right, let's just bag for a minute more. You yeah. know, he was satting fine. Everything else was going okay. Yeah. But man, I went from. So he was bagging okay. He was bagging okay. Okay. We put a nasal trumpet in. Sure. I mean, we had we had airway. He was satting at a hundred. So even though that is definitely puckering scenario, 
the fact that you had a nasal trumpet, you were able to bag ahead of time is, is a little more reassuring to me because worst case scenario, you can continue to do that until things set in. And ideally, you're going to have something that's going to set in within the next 30 seconds. You sure hope so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at that point, you're questioning every single thing that's been put. Like, was this actually rock or did they just put saline or like, what, yeah. what the hell Right. Happened? Do we have the right medication? Do yeah. we have the right dose? Yeah. What is my ultimate backup plan on this kid who, sure, I can continue to bag with a nasal trumpet, but the ultimate reason I was doing all this was actually protect, protect to, to protect his yeah. airway, which sure. I'm not currently protecting right now. It wasn't a ventilation issue in a early teen kid, your emergent airway options are a little bit more limited, limited and a little yeah. bit more difficult than they are in an adult patient. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there, there sure. were, my mind was racing. Fortunately, 15 seconds later, Bingo. 30 seconds later, he mouth relaxed. opens up, he relaxes, intubation is easy as can be, there's no additional complications, and uh, as serendipitous as it gets, just as I finish the intubation, I turn around and the critical care transport team for the uh, pediatric hospital is standing behind me, ready to take over. So literally, we didn't even have to put them on our vent. We were able to put them right on their vent. Awesome. Uh, talked a little bit about what medications we needed to give them before they went. They told me what their capabilities were, so that's what we ended up going with for sedation drips, and uh, the kid left. Ended up doing okay at the pediatric hospital, as far as I could tell from follow-up information, but it was a, uh, a puckering situation, and... From a medical management, not the most complicated patient in the world, no. something that we handle relatively often. But the fact that it's a pediatric patient uh, that became progressively more complicated in some ways as we went yeah. uh, certainly made for some some interesting dynamics in the emergency department. Yeah. This whole scenario is, is just screaming the keeping your calm in really s- scary situations because that's going to make everyone else calm too. From the start of this case to the very end, that's it's basically what this is. And it's, it's a good reminder of sometimes you have to keep your calm for a few seconds when you're you know doing a procedure and you can't quite get what you need or it might be literally a whole patient for hours and that's going to be exhausting i'm sure emotionally and mentally afterwards you were toast i was exhausted <laughs> you know this is only two hours into or three hours into a 10-hour shift and it's hard to recover from Oof, that yeah real hard because yeah. i had first of all nothing else the rest of the day was that interesting so you know it's lunchbox letdown and we talk about that a lot <laughs> Yeah, you, you have to be you have to be careful when you walk into those situations because you're not ready to see your next patient. No. You need a minute. Um, your staff needs a minute too because, and I have to give props out to my staff and hopefully some of them will listen to this. I'm not going to call anyone out by name, but they were fantastic. You know, everyone uh, once we said, "Hey, I think this patient's still seizing." Everyone realized the gravity of the situation without getting excited, upset, anxious. Uh, the attending. Uh, who came over and helped me out, who I was, who I was w- working with, was uh, equally fantastic. And we had a lot of conversations on the side about holy junk, holy junk, holy junk, but yeah. we never let anyone else know that. I really think that's a good <coughs> scenario, too. And this would probably be a whole talk in itself, but the short debrief, talking with everybody and, and you know congratulating them face-to-face and saying, hey, good job, you guys did awesome. And that's, that's a good moment in time to do that when you, you realize that it was a stressful situation. Guaranteed everyone else realized it, too. Yeah, everyone did. Absolutely. Yeah. And, in fact, the third attending that was working that day popped over, and, you know, it was there for the intubation, and it was kind of saw the look on my face when the mouth didn't quite open, and I saw the look on his face when the mouth didn't quite open. And, you know, again, it was one of those we didn't say anything because there's you know what you have to do. The unspoken and words. Yeah. I, of course, had planned... B, C, and D in my head. Unfortunately, plan. Unfortunately, none of them had to be used other than plan. You know, A one, which is let's just bag for a minute longer and until yeah. things relax. Yeah, when we did a quick debrief, 
Everyone was uh, very receptive. There was not a whole lot of criticism or any criticism needed to be had. We all kind of got got it off our chest. And then I think uh, my response to everyone was, okay, I'm going to go walk and get a soda. Can I get anybody anything? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go take a quick break. I just needed to go to the bathroom. Um, Probably needed to change my pants. Unfortunately, didn't have a uh, (laughs) a clean pair of underwear in there. And then get back to work because you have to uh, reset. So the only other thing I want to add to this is something I do before I do a procedure on somebody. Um, and this is really, I think we talked about an episode a while ago. It's from a movie, but I had been doing this long before that, which is the idea of clearing the mechanism. Yeah. So um, it, it's uh, the idea that before you do something that is going to take all of your concentration, all of your effort, that you literally take 10 seconds and I close my eyes, release everything else that's going on, everything, everything, every other patient, every other situation. I visualize the procedure or the the patient I'm about to take care of and what I need to do to successfully take care of them. And then when I actually go to do that, so an intubation, which is probably the number one thing, I'm not paying attention to anything else. My focus is on push the medications, assess the patient. And there could be somebody screaming in the bed next door and I literally don't hear the screaming. But then when you're done with the situation, when the patient encounters over and now I got to get back to work, I do the clearing the mechanism again, which is I just clear myself from yeah. the patient I just done, take that 30 seconds to walk down the hallway, grab a soda, yeah. reset myself, and now I'm ready to go back to work again. I'd say it's that, that's probably the hardest part of our job. Like, I mean, long hours don't bother me, but it's truly the, what I just did was hard, it was stressful, I gotta dump that to the side, because there's 13 people waiting for me now, because I did this for two hours. Um, and, and to me, it's it's really, the way you handle that is gonna help with your longevity. You know, we, we talked about burnout in other episodes as well, that. You know, we have we have friends friends that are providers that the one, those that do that well are typically happier the rest of their shift. Yeah. They have a happier life. They're more active. And those that don't, like you can just when you work with them, they're just run down. They're tired. They're aggravated. They they're still carrying patients from shifts ago on their current shift. And it's just something that it's hard. Like it, this is by all, by all means not easy. It's not a perfect science, but it's definitely a skill you have to acquire. You have to develop. Um, it's hard to carry one person, let alone. 50 from yeah. previous days on your shoulder. Well, guys, thanks for the conversation. No, I look forward awesome. to the next episode of The Clinical Grind where you guys are going to drop uh, some cases on me. We'll continue the conversation. Hopefully this adds to everyone's ability to approach that next clinical shift just a little better than they did the shift before. Of course, all you listeners out there, be sure to follow us on Facebook, like us on Twitter, check out our feed on uh, iTunes so you can listen to all these awesome episodes and please 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 give us some feedback do you like the idea of the clinical grind and are there any cases that potentially you would like to present to us because we're going to start venturing into the world of remote podcasting it's exciting what? and uh, doing some Skype episodes we're going to be able to bring people in remotely that aren't sitting down at the uh, the diner or wherever we are and we'd love to get some some guests from all over the country on to participate in this awesomeness that we're doing so. oh snap Until next time, have a good shift. (laughs) That was good. I I like that. That was good. That's going to be no edits needed for the most part. Just that one edit in the beginning where uh, you choked yourself. (laughs) No, that's staying in. That was delicious. That can be like a a, a little little intro. (laughs) That was good. Thankfully, the coffee was too hot at that point. So (laughs) you completely sinned yourself. cleared out my sinuses. Nice. Well, copy Nate Pot. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Thanks.